This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest wi-fi access for customers bt's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy whatever your business bt's got your back search bt's got your back Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Jolly. Don't forget, if you want to come on the radio and play our hugely popular quiz, Can You Get to Number 10? Uh, it's 10 general knowledge questions, loosely connected to 10 cabinet jobs. Uh, then get in touch. Just email me your details, matt.chorley at times.radio. Particularly if you're abroad, we're always looking for international quizzes for a Thursday, but anyone can play. matt.chorley at times.radio. Get in touch. Right, coming up on our big thing today, freedom of information. Uh, do you remember that? Yeah, anyone could put in a request to uh, access information the government holds, but it seems that the government might be being slightly tricksy about whether or not it does or doesn't release information. We're going to investigate what exactly is going on and ask what have they got to hide. But first, as our columnist panel, it's Tuesday, so it must be Finkelvich. It's Danny Finkelstein and David Ivanovich. of columnists, the Janus of journalism, and the ultimate political portmanteau of opinion. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Finkelvich, with Daniel Finkelstein and David Aronovich, on Times Radio. Ah, good morning to you both. Good morning, Danny Finkelstein. Good morning. I noticed that you're now actually sponsoring this item with, by Go centrist daddy. <laughs> very good, very good. And everyone else, everyone else's other favourite uh, centrist daddy is David Ivanovich. Morning, David. Good morning. Why would anybody actually tell you what it was they didn't want to tell anybody? <laughs> well, this is a we, we had exactly that discussion just before the show this morning, thinking, well, is it possible that nobody will fess up? And they all have. So don't worry, I shall ask you at the end of this item for your own. Uh, in vain. You will ask in vain. <laughs> I'll just get you warmed up. You'll be putting my hands in 10 minutes, don't we? Um, <laughs> right, let's start with uh, two things that, that you both love dearly, football and politics, and they're coming together. Uh, most recently, overnight, uh, the England footballer Tyrone Ming saying on Twitter, well, in fact, uh, retweeting Pretty Patel, saying you don't get to stoke the fire at the beginning of the tournament by labelling our anti-racism messages gesture politics and then pretend to be disgusted when the very thing we're campaigning against happens. So, obviously, it was a response to the uh, racist abuse that the players faced after uh, the final on Sunday. 
Danny, are footballers right to get involved in politics or is the problem politicians getting involved in football? No, they've got their every right to say whatever they think. And it, this isn't really about politics anyway. This is about their own civic equality, their personal uh, relationship with fans and their experience as players. And I thought right from the beginning, I mean, I didn't, I thought Priti Patel has misunderstood the uh, basic political attitudes, not just of Tyrone Mings's generation, but I think of the country. I thought it was an error that also involved not being familiar with how well England were likely to do in the tournament and us putting us <laughs> off on the wrong side and hoping that later you could go from being sort of home secretary to football's coming home secretary. No one would notice. I'd, I just think um, that, that it was bound to end as it did. So I thought it was, um, uh, you know, a pretty lame thing to have said, to put it mildly. Actually, that's that's not strong enough. I, I thought it was outrageous um, to have to have dismissed the gesture by these young people as simply just a politics at the beginning. Uh, and I'm not surprised that she's run into trouble with it. She should have thought more before she did it. David, leap to uh, yeah. Pretty Patel's defence. <laughs> uh, yeah, I want to... <laughs> no, um, is the simple <laughs> answer to that one, uh, 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 really. Um, uh, the th thing that really interested me, I mean, firstly, to say one of the things that interested me about what Danny Dan just said, which was, which I think was right, was she thought England would do badly and consequently it wouldn't be, England's team wouldn't be quite as popular as they have been and therefore this was a more kind of cost-free exercise in joining up with the right wing of her party who didn't like Black Lives Matter and saw it as a, some kind of Marxist threat, associated taking the knee with it as somehow kind of un-British rather than the gesture it was, misunderstood it as Danny said entirely, so she thought there wouldn't be a payback for it uh, presumably, so she could indulge that wing of her party relatively painlessly and there is that kind of element there you know you see it in parts of the spectator you see it in parts of gb news you see it kind of elsewhere which is sort of wokeism is taking over the world this is an example of it uh, up with this we will not put us proper british persons uh, and so on and she has got caught in it but entirely for the reasons that danny says which is that she's completely misunderstood what this gesture actually means both in uh, to football fans for, for the most part, the vast majority of whom support the team in what they're doing. I mean, all polls show that the vast majority of them support it. Why on earth she would think that they didn't, I do not know. Uh, uh, and so she gets the rib... And it's interesting to see Johnny Mercer, the Conservative MP, saying, yeah, Tyrone Mings is right about this, and we've got a bit of a problem which we kind of failed to acknowledge, and I see it in my own, uh, amongst some of my own Conservative friends. So the interesting thing, uh, Matt, is the calling of the gesture politics. She didn't take seriously her own uh, point. It is exactly that. It is a gesture, and gestures are very powerful. And this gesture, they couldn't have been more clear what it meant. I'm sure that, you know, that, that, that um, the thoughts pass through people's heads that, that there was a sort of political undertow to this um, to this gesture, and maybe it wasn't the perfect one to have chosen, uh, but they chose it. And once it has been chosen, we all know what it means. We all know what they're trying to say, and we all know what the experience of their lives. And it's really not for me to start choosing for Tyrone Mings what the gesture might be that demonstrates what is clearly an important thing for footballers to demonstrate that they are protesting against racism or won't put up with it because they experience it in perhaps ways that, I mean, look, it's interesting because Priti Patel will certainly have had her own experience of racism. Uh, and it's surprising to me because Jews have this too, right? It's surprising to me that from that she doesn't get that you then make gestures and look for and hope 
for solidarity from other people. And you don't want at that point for them to start nitpicking about the gesture you chose. Yeah. That's one yeah. of the sort of strangest parts of uh, Priti Patel's role in this. Uh, that as you, you know, well, the most senior uh, non-white cabinet minister in the country, that she 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 weighed in on on so clumsily on this on this issue, David. Well, sometimes you do get this phenomenon called plus you can describe as plus royaliste que le roi. Uh, really, you're kind of more royalist than the king in a funny kind of a way, and that a very important part of sh- uh, of being of belonging is showing that actually you cover all the sorts of bases. And then, of course, there's no total reason why somebody from uh, Priti Patel's background shouldn't very much take the attitudes that, that she has. I mean, we know that uh, attitudes don't adhere to kind of, uh, of colour. I, uh, you know, and I'm not accusing her of being a racist, but Danny and I will be well aware that there have been such things, are such things as racist Jews. Um, you know, there were some powerful Jews in the Monday Club when it was very kind of... I don't think that is her motivation, by the way. Uh, I don't think it's racism at all. I think it is... She has bought the idea that this is a gesture of a Marxist anti-capitalist group, and that is just... Um, it was just sort of culturally illiterate. That is not what they meant by it. That's not what, you know, uh, Frank Lampard and Roy Hodgson meant when they took the knee in the Premier League season last year. It, it, and, 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 and I think it was to, to miss that that had happened, to miss the way that people felt by it, and to think that yeah. um, people were joining in with, with, with the sort of extreme anti-capitalist rhetoric of some members of Black Lives Matter. And it, that's just wrong. That wasn't what was happening. It's interesting because I don't know whether she's being stupid or cynical. Uh, that is she, deli- you know, did she just completely misread this, or is she? Well, well, well. I mean, if she is, she, I, she's basically trying to make a political point out of it, reaching some part of the electorate uh, yeah. in doing this. Red wall. Well, we say that, but even that is wrong. No, I, the, uh, if you look at the no, polling no, for the red wall, um, there was no there was the you uh, polling, but a couple of months ago. No, no let me let no, me no, be clear. Sh- it's imagined. It's imagined red wall. Yes, okay. I don't say that is actually the red wall. It's this is the, the imagination of what the red wall or people like that are supposed to be like. No, Pretty Patel's power as a political figure, which she definitely has, is that she genuinely thinks this herself, right? So this was this was her own view. It was not constructed or cynical construct. And I think that that she um, nor do I think it was stupidity, but I do think it was, um, you know, I do think she was completely wrong because she failed to understand what uh, this gesture meant to the people that were making it. But I do think it's important to understand it was, you know, I I think Boris Johnson's quite capable of um, making this uh, making this statement entirely for sort of electoral calculations in the Red Wall. Um, That's not where Priti Patel is. I think that she made that statement because she agrees with those people who think that it's a source of uh, acceptance of the BLM movement and she doesn't want to accept it. That is her politics. Yeah, that YouGov, just looked it up, that YouGov polling of the Red Wall, it asked a whole, you know, a whole series of questions, a whole range of issues, but particularly on uh, race, on a question of having a wide variety of different ethnic backgrounds and cultures as part of British culture. 54% of the British public uh, agree with that. 50% of Red Wall residents agree. On the question of... Yeah. Uh, um, uh, um, the various different ethnic groups living in Britain all generally get along well. 30% of Britons, 27% of Red Wall residents. On the sort of the actual, you know, has immigration been a good thing? 50% of Britons say it is. Uh, 40% of Red Wall. There's not some great divergence. So it's interesting, David, uh, you well, make that uh, point. Uh, it's an imagined Red Wall rather than a real one. Uh, 
well exactly most of it's an imagined and particularly when it comes to this i suspect it's uh it, it's an it's an imagined red wall you remember when millwall supporters were the first to boo players taking the knee and you did then got a whole kind of susurration around what you would call the kind of you know the the commentariat right about how they were right to do it. i mean it was quite funny really because these were on the whole people who would not usually stand in solidarity with millwall supporters but nevertheless they discovered some under those uh, under those kinds of circumstances and there's obviously it's very difficult to look inside the interior motivation of people but i will say this i do think there is an element of cynicism in this uh, calculation or the calculation that was then ha- was then being made about the anti-woke battle some of it was true but some of it was a kind of element of kind of calculation this is my these are the people i need to please i'm going to please them by saying this thing and i don't and, and that's why i think danny she didn't think it through now boris johnson actually said that he was not going to condemn those who booed people taking uh, taking me and that was at roughly the same time and i do you know they are different actually, to people. be fair to, to, to i'd make two points to this first of all i agree with you in general um but I just don't think it's the case in Pretty Patel's case. Indeed, I think her power with a certain type of voter is that this is her authentic politics. That's what I think. It's not, I don't agree with it, but it is. I don't think she's doing it cynically. I think Boris Johnson's much more capable of, of a cynical position. And that's why, in fact, actually, although his spokesman <laughs> refused to condemn it, about two days later, he did condemn it. Um, uh, and um, uh, although, so I, I think... Um, you're quite right. I mean, I've said this a lot. I think a lot of the whole thing on culture war is pretty much cooked up and often it involves sort of making mountains out of molehills and you can hear the scraping of barrels if I'm allowed to mix my metaphors. Um, but but I don't actually think, I mean, this is becoming then an arcane dispute about Priti Patel's politics, but I don't actually think it's the case in this incident, I th- in this instance. Um, I just think she was... I just think her view of this is wrong. I think she misunderstood what the gesture was. Uh, and I think that there are is a real cost to be paid um, for the Conservative Party to get on the wrong side of these sorts of issues. Um, you know, personally, I think it's a sort of, as it were, a moral cost, but it's also a political cost. Um, so uh, Mark from Sunbury's just texted in saying, your two ignorant guests need to read the BLM website. Then they will see a hard left Marxist organisation. Have they read the BLM website? Of course I have. Right, I'm a political columnist for a national newspaper. What do you think? I'm sure David has too. You are missing the point spectacularly. The point about it is this gesture may have been the same as the um, as these people, but it's not for the same motivation. And this was not an endorsement of their agenda. The idea that Harry Kane is endorsing um, Das Kapital is preposterous. And it's and and not only that. But you, even though it was preposterous to start off with, someone bothered to ask him, and he explained that's not what he was doing. So we know that it's not what he was doing. You, you are, you are basically having a battle in an empty room by yourself with this argument, and it's just, um, and that is the, that is just a total mistake. Well, there we are. That's Mark from Sunbury told. Um, uh, let's move on uh, to um, the. Uh, other topic we were going to discuss uh, today. Maybe this is maybe this is a solution. If if Priti Patel is too much of a problem being a minister, what about this idea from the Commission for Smart Government yesterday that we should have more non-politicians appointed as ministers instead? Would that solve the problem, David? Um, I, 
this idea is a re- is a recurrent, isn't it? And, and I mean, it's got a re- and at one kind of level, it's very attractive because what it says is, why just rely for ministers upon those who've managed to be uh, members of parliament? Why not have a gene pool which is much wider? And that way, you not only could have Danny Finkelstein as a minister, you could have Matt Chorley as a minister. Um, I'm not sure anybody wants that. Draft of it. What Minister for, Minister for uh, Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sport, etc. Matt Chorley. Very, very popular choice, kind of people's choice and, uh, and so on. But the idea, so, so, so anyway, you widen, you widen the gene pool and you give the Prime Minister that much more choice and discretion. Now, there are a number of problems with this. Firstly, it, even, it, it, it decreases even further the reasons why people might want to become members of Parliament. Um, second, that line of accountability that runs through Parliament, um, even though it is expressed in terms of the capacity to, to unelect it, members of Parliament in, at, at elections that may not have to do directly with their competence, is an important thing that keeps them attached to what the voters say and what the voters think. So what this becomes is a kind of way of saying, can we have a form of government which can detach itself more from politics, become more uh, uh, meretricious uh, in a sense, but see things more on its kind of merit. And though I, some people I really respect believe in this, I have to say, I think it's a diversion. Uh, Danny. Well, it's, it's a solution to a problem that doesn't really exist. I mean, we have, at the moment, at least, we do have the House of Lords already to solve this particular problem. And I wasn't that convinced that you need to solve the problem of getting these people to serve on without having to be legislators for life, because people can retire from resign from the House of Lords. So I don't think it's I don't think this is a real problem. Um, but but it does point to something that I think is at the heart of quite a lot of their proposals and a lot of our discussion also about federalism and electoral reform, which is, do we want a parliamentary system in which the executive sits in parliament? There are real costs to it. And we have been chipping away and wondering uh, at it and wondering whether we shouldn't be directly electing the prime minister as some sort of president and having ministers in the way they do in the United States. I'm not convinced that that has produced a better system of government, um, personally. Uh, But it does mean you would be able to do things like federal parliaments and um, you would be able to to have electoral reform uh, that created coalitions in the house and much more easily so it does there there are certain things you could do um but but it but it's uh but i you know and i and i'm of the view that over the last 300 years we've been moving slowly towards a presidential system you know i think in in 75 years time it's easy to see that we would have moved to a system that is de facto or even de jure presidential system but personally speaking being a small c as well as a big conservative i big c conservative i prefer the parliamentary system and therefore, ministers should be in Parliament, and we have a system for that. Is the question? I was because we spoke to Nick Herbert, who was the, the who chairs the, the this commission for smart government. We spoke to him yesterday, and I was sort of struck that all prime ministers complain that the system isn't working, uh, and sometimes that's because you know ministers have come up with some daft ideas, which uh, the system knows uh, don't work. But there's also a question of um, you need a plan. Uh, and it's not totally clear what what Boris Johnson wants to do, aside from coronavirus, having got Brexit done. The problem isn't necessarily that the system isn't set up properly. Uh, it's what is it that he wants to do with it? And that's 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 a sort of a, a bigger problem, isn't it, David? Well, I mean, I think in his case, I think we do know he wants yachts and bridges and visa, huge ideas and 
uh, island airports. That's that's what he wants, sort of grand grand projet, and the kind of and, and those much more complex projects of government, of which that kind of social care might be stand as the kind of motif, uh, is very much more is very much more problematic for him um and so under his circumstances it's very difficult to see really well i suppose actually he could appoint in a few architects and people like that and sort of big engineers <laughs> put i think it's minister for bridges I, I think look i think i think these are actually two separate questions and we can have a conversation about boris johnson and what he wants to do with government on another occasion these are long-standing problems no i mean we can't you know or, or we can have it now and have this conversation about about how you organize the premiership another time but they aren't the same <laughs> thing um, no, but you've the, just done that thing you're not allowed to do uh, you've decided what the host should ask you um <laughs> <laughs> and we've now that's is that the kind of fourth wall of radio shows we've taken over we've just taken over matt chorley's program that's fine you do that i'll uh, well, i'll, I'll just have a cup of tea and you two could uh, take care of it well i'll tell you what go on then um, as you've you've tried to take over, let me actually ask one final question. Which bit of your life would you not want opened up to a freedom of information request, David? I'm not telling you. <laughs> of course. I mean, I, the, the, I, it's very interesting, of course, that people are giving you examples of things that nobody would remotely ask a freedom of information question about them, about, you know, kind of, you know, I really want to know about your toenail clippings. No, I really, really don't. And so on. The things that people don't want to, people to know are the things that they won't tell you that they don't want people to know, of course. That's why they won't tell you. And that's why <laughs> this has all got a bit better. Danny, have you right, got anything a... you want to share with the class? Yeah, I don't think I don't think my views about the Freedom of Information Act should be open to the Freedom of Information Act. <laughs> um, <laughs> the, um, also, also the number of propelling pencils that I have. I don't really want anyone to uh, to know that and begin to wonder why I have so many. <laughs> Danny Finkstein and David Ivanovich there. Of course, you can read them in The Times every week. Just get yourself a digital subscription. Go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, what's the government got to hide? It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now, let's take a look at Freedom of Information. Okay, let's talk secrets uh, right now. Now, you might have heard the term freedom of information uh, when you read about almost anything to do with government or public authorities. It's to do with 
getting hold of expenses, election data, how many hospital beds or whatever there might be. But how do you get hold of this information and what do you do once you've got it? Well, freedom of information requests, I've done many of them over the years, uh, not always terribly successfully, uh, but they can be submitted by anyone to any public body to ask to see information held by them. And you have to believe journalists use them a lot to get hold of data, which otherwise the government might not want to release. But right now, the government is facing accusations that it's blocking the release of information that should be made public. A formal inquiry has now begun into whether or not the Cabinet Office is breaking transparency laws with its secretive Freedom of Information Screening Unit. Uh, The Cross-Party Commons Public Administration and Constitution Affairs Committee is going to investigate the operation of the unit, uh, known as the Clearing House, that advises other government departments on how to respond to FOI requests. The unit uh, attracted criticism after it was revealed last year that departments, government departments this is, had been flagging up details of the journalists who'd made requests. It should be uh, treated entirely uh, separately, regardless of who uh, actually has made a Freedom of Information request. Questions have also been raised in Parliament. Here's Labour's Fleur Anderson asking the Conservative Minister, Julia Lopez, whether any journalists are treated differently when it comes to FOI. Mr Speaker, last month an information tribunal said that there is a profound lack of transparency about the operation of the Freedom of Information Clearinghouse. Can the Minister confirm categorically that every single Freedom of Information request received has been treated in exactly the same way, with no approach that's different for certain journalists or campaigners? I can confirm that we treat those information requests on a case-by-case basis, and the background of who is asking is not a criteria for how we treat that request. Well, that was uh, the uh, Conservative Minister, Julia Lopez, insisting who is asking questions on the freedom of information is not taken into account, which isn't quite the picture that lots of people have got. Right, uh, we're going to speak to now some journalists who've tried to get some information out of the government. Uh, Let's speak, first of all, to Martin Rosenbaum, a former former BBC journalist who specialises in freedom of information requests. Morning, Martin. Good morning. Just explain for people who don't know, because it's one of these things that they probably get, you know, it's in the third or fourth paragraph of of a news story, but without giving any... Um, uh, you know, go into great details. Free, you know, data uh, uh, obtained under freedom of information. Talk us through the process of you, Martin. Think right. I want to try and get hold of some data. How do you go about using freedom of information? Well, a freedom of information request has to be in writing. So I would send off an email to the government department or whichever public body it is that's holding the information that I'm seeking. Uh, in, you're probably going to have to wait at least 20 working days. That's for the simplest answers to come back to you. Longer answers, which are more complicated, if you actually get the information, will take months, um, possibly sometimes even longer. So it can be a very slow and laborious process where it pays to be persistent. And that's absolutely one of the key lessons for any journalist or anybody else using freedom of information, that persistence is important. But I think the key thing I would say to anybody who's thinking about making an FOI request at the beginning, think very carefully about how you phrase it. Make sure you're phrasing it to ask for exactly the right information that you're wanting so you don't go off heading down some kind of dead end, which is no use to you and a waste of everybody's time. And that's the thing. If I'm trying to get information, that's what I do. I think very carefully about how I'm going to phrase this request. And so uh, uh, give us an example of that, of where um, a general, you know, uh, request for information gets knocked back because they say it's either 
too much uh, information that, you know, they can't find it or they don't hold it or it's not uh, available. And then you sort of tighten it up and you rewrite it and you sort of get to the number of it. Give us an example of, of, of the difference. So sometimes you find people who aren't used to putting in FOR requests, they ask for all information that you hold in relation to such and such, some particular issue. That's going to go over the cost limit that there is um, almost immediately. Um, and what you've got to do instead is think very precisely about what, you know, am I after the minutes of this meeting? Or is it about this correspondence between these two individuals? Or is it between uh, the documents held by this particular unit in this particular government department? And it pays to develop what's sometimes called a recorded information frame of mind to be thinking about uh, what is the information that's actually recorded with regard to this? Uh, it's no use asking, you know, what are the contents of people's heads? What are they planning to do? The content of someone's head is not something that is subject to freedom of information. <laughs> it's what information has actually been recorded. So, you know, you might submit a broad request first, but then you end up narrowing it down in terms of what's the specific document or specific series of documents that are relevant to what I'm actually asking about. And what's the what is and is you know what's in people's heads isn't covered, but what is and isn't covered. So, uh, government papers, cabinet papers, that sort of thing, uh, data, you know, statistics, and that sort of thing generated by the government obviously is is all covered. But where there's also been the conversation recently about private email addresses, you know, email accounts. There was Matt Hancock using a private email account. Is that covered? And then it goes more broadly into sort of WhatsApp text messages, Twitter DMs. Is it possible to FOI those two? Theoretically, yes. It doesn't make any difference to the legal position how the information, uh, what system is used for recording or transferring the information. It doesn't make any difference whether the messages between ministers have been carved into tablets of stone <laughs> or submitted over some kind of WhatsApp message. It doesn't make any difference. In theory, the law is the same. If it's on government business, it's in principle covered by FOI. However, in practice inevitably when people are using their own private devices it's going to be more difficult to get that information if you submit an foi request for information that is on uh, only on the personal phone in the gmail account of a government minister say uh, the foi team at that government department is not going to go to the government minister and say give me your gmail password so that i can read all your gmail and discover if there's anything relevant to this thing some annoying journalist is asking about, um, they're going to say, have you got anything on this particular topic? And inevitably, stuff will not be found. And inevitably, in practice, it is harder to get information that has been in personal devices as opposed to government computers, um, although the legal position is indeed the same. OK, let's bring in a couple more journalists who've, uh, who've uh, tried to pick their way through the minefield of freedom of information. George Greenwood works on data and investigation for The Times. Hi, George. Hello. Uh, we've also got Susie Boniface uh, from The Daily Mirror as well. Hi, Susie. Hello. So, George, uh, give us your experience of trying to get things out of uh, the government through freedom of information. And has there been a change, uh, which is what the suggestion has been, that they are now less forthcoming in releasing this information? Well, I think especially central government departments, are always not very keen to give stuff up uh, if it's embarrassing. Uh, I think that a lot of the time, there's, be it for political or you know, civil service institutional inertia reasons, they will try uh, and resist stuff if they don't have to give it to you. I think the change has been uh, in recent years, and certainly during the pandemic, um, is how aggressive the Information Commissioner's Office has been in some of these cases. So 
at the moment, uh, for people who don't know, the Information Commissioner's Office is the watchdog FOI. Um, they can make legally enforceable uh, orders uh, for the departments to release stuff if they think the department's withholding stuff illegally or within breach of FOI or trying to redact too much. Now, it takes about six to nine months now to get a substantive response from the Information Commissioner. Um, I reported last week that the caseload had hit 2,000 cases. And the problem is, is it, this enables government departments to just say, well, you know, we don't have to give them today. We'll, we'll use a spurious exemption that doesn't really apply. And it'll take a year for us to get to, for the commissioner to actually force us to release it. Now, you know, sometimes it doesn't matter. I mean, I did an investigation uh, last month into child sexual exploitation, um, FOI, lots of documents from police. And actually those documents, many of them from 2018 and 2019. So, uh, you know, while they can make it difficult to get information, it doesn't kill the story. Um, but if you want to report on something that happened a month or two ago, and you want the internal correspondence about that, um, it starts to become a historic interest story rather than a front page news story. And so this is the sort of one of the big issues around how um, transparency is becoming harder, especially during the pandemic. And it'd be interesting to see how well that um, snaps back afterwards. Uh, Susie Boniface, what's been your experience of uh, the FOI process? (laughs) Um, there isn't one Uh, I I do my own FOIs uh, as a result of covering the nuclear test veteran campaign for the mirror since 2002 which of course has some quite uh, secretive and confidential stuff that's involved in it and to do with nuclear security and so on and also um, as a visiting lecturer at City University I supervise uh, undergraduates and postgraduate students doing sort of projects and they're doing FOIs of themselves and I'm guiding them on how to do it um, and there's a fundamental problem, really, with the way our system is designed. When Tony Blair introduced it, he said, this is going to be like America. We'll have freedom of information. And then the legislation was written and it was the other way around. So in America, there is a, a predisposition that everything should be published unless you can find a good reason that it isn't. So there are regular dumps of information on, on US government websites. And if I wanted to go and make uh, find out about American nuclear weapons tests in the Cold War, I can pull that information down. Same in Australia. In the UK, our Freedom of Information Act was written in such a way that there was a predisposition to assume nothing should be published unless you could find a good reason that it should be. Consequently, you have to fight to get every single thing out of them. And it doesn't matter if you're asking about um, arrest ratios or stop and search or nuclear weapons. They have the same attitude, which is no, why should you? And that's that causes a problem. Um, I mean, but it's also it's there's a there's a few other issues in that it's it's massively under-resourced and understaffed. There's one poor schmuck in every department, in every council or authority in the country who's having to deal with all of this. They get um, a lot of responses from people who are obsessed about something. They get a lot of requests from people that eventually end up being labelled as vexatious and therefore ignored, which is unreasonable, but that's how it is. Um, They get a lot of people who are making requests. They don't quite understand the rules that have just been outlaid. So there's people making requests that are just far too expensive and can't get done. And then there's because they are part of the organisation that is that is being asked to open itself to scrutiny. There's an institutional unwillingness to do it. I'm sitting here at the moment at my desk looking at an inch thick bundle of paperwork, which is the result of uh, not an FOI, but a, a special subject access request, which is when you can ask a public authority for how it has used your data. 
And bearing in mind, I've been a defence reporter and I've written about defence issues since 1999. I've travelled on nuclear submarines. I've overnighted on nuclear on uh, Navy warships. I have been on operations and I have written about nuclear weapons veterans since 2002. And so I emailed uh, the SSAR department, the MOD, and said, could I please see how you have used my data? So you have a right to see how your name or your email address or your phone number has been used by a public organisation. And obviously, I'm a journalist. The reason I've done that is to see how they're discussing my stories and maybe get another story out of it. But I have <laughs> I have the right as a, as a citizen of this country to see how the government is using my data. And what I got back as a result was an inch thick bundle of paperwork that was heavily redacted. And I've got one here where uh, an email which has the from removed, the sent removed, the date, well, no, the date is on it, subject, re-mirror story, nuclear test veterans, blank, 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 blank. It's Susie Boniface, blank. Now, that... You know, that is no help at all in terms of telling me the context in which my data was used. Who was it in response to? Who was writing about it? How were they using it? So on and so forth. Um, and I had to appeal this and it's taken months. I made that request I think, back in March and it finally got a, a result this week and I got the full email sent to me. But I've got a, pu- a bundle of paperwork to go through to do these appeal processes. And they just, they just hope that you, you will in the end just I give, give up. up. You just give exactly. up. And you know, the MOD, you know, mate, I've been doing it since 2002. Do I look like I'm giving up? No. <laughs> George, George, explain, um, uh, George Greenwood from The Times, explain to us about this, this issue of the clearinghouse, how we found out about the clearinghouse and, and what the clearinghouse is doing from your perspective. Yeah, sure. So uh, the clearinghouse is something that has existed since about 2005. Um, it is a, uh, a department within the Cabinet Office, um, that coordinates uh, requests from to other central government bodies and agencies um, to get consistent responses. Uh, and in theory, what it should be uh, is to uh, ensure that, you know, if you send around Robin for a certain couple of information to all government departments, uh, they have consistent response and give you the information you want. In practice, however, it has become more or less a screening unit where, you know, certainly my data has been passed for <laughs> That you know, another official described me as the ever active Mr. Greenwood uh, to the cabinet <laughs> officials, um, and and they fl- request a flag. To them. I mean, I, I've seen at least one request of mine um, was flagged as very sensitive because he's a journalist. Now, um, an open democracy, uh, a media outlet, um, has uncovered a lot of similar material about journalists' details being passed to them. Um, this comes into the conflict of interest at the heart of FOIA, which is that. Government departments have institutional in- interests in not being embarrassed or, or having difficult information released if they don't have to. And, you know, what's happening, in, in, at least in some cases, is that requests are being flagged as highly sensitive media requests. Now, the government line is often um, anything handled by the clearinghouse or handled in these ways, uh, it's handled just the same way, even if journalism data, journalist data happens to find its way in. But it does create a conflict of interest. And there's the risk that a quiet phone call or post-it note or something is put on the request asking something not to go out. Uh, then you have to go to the information commissioner to try and force them to release it. Um, so there is, you know, in theory, um, there's nothing wrong with the clearinghouse. But in practice, you know, the PACAC committee will be investigating how it actually works in reality. Uh, and it does risk, you know, increase the risk that information is being withheld without good reason. We should say we did ask uh, a government minister to come on the show. Uh, none was available, apparently. Uh, but uh, a spokesperson for the Cabinet Office told us the Clearing House is a small unit within the Cabinet Office that advises on 
that advises other government departments on how to respond to requests, which it has been criticised, uh, which has been criticised by some outlets. It is a very small team of three people. It works to coordinate between different departments, and this increases efficiency and transparency. If each department responded differently to the same FOI, it would be more confusing for journalists. But these people are overworked, uh, they say. However, in the last quarter, you received 8,000 FOI requests and 90% responded to within 20 working days. Uh, the spokesman added, we never take into account the names of different journalists. Accusations that some journalists appear on blacklists are entirely false. We treat each FOI blindly and equally. We are completely confident that we are operating within the Freedom of Information legal framework as well as data protection laws. So that's the, that's the view from the Cabinet Office. In a moment, we're going to hear from uh, Maurice Frankel uh, from the Campaign for Freedom of Information. And we'll also look at some of the, the stories which have only come out as a result of Freedom of Information. Matt Chorley on Times Radio with GoDaddy. Providing all the help and tools you need to grow your business online. Let's speak to Maurice Frankel now from the Campaign for Freedom of Information. Hi, Maurice. Hi, Matt. Uh, nice to have you with us. What are your concerns about the way that the Freedom of Information uh, Act is or isn't working? Well, uh, uh, the first one is the delays are very substantial and uh, too much for a lot of people. The information by the time it comes out, if it comes out, uh, is is often too late to be used. Uh, secondly... Uh, and, and we think it needs more robust enforcement to ensure this doesn't happen. Uh, secondly, uh, the scope of the bill is not as wide as it should be. A lot of public services are provided by contractors now, and contractors not properly covered by the Freedom of Information Act. Government is also now uh, getting into the habit of trying to exclude newly established bodies from the scope of the act altogether. It's doing that with a body that uh, is being set up under a bill which has its second reading in the Commons tomorrow to investigate health, safe, health service uh, safety incidents. So that body, uh, it'll be prohibited from disclosing information held in connection with its function of investigating safety incidents that will override the FOI right of access. And the government has also excluded this uh, new research agency dealing with um, high risk, high reward projects with a budget of 800 million. That's been excluded from the Freedom of Information Act. Uh, so it will be less accountable than a parish council. Parish councils are subject to the Act. So there are a lot of uh, difficulties with the way the Act uh, is enforced, which it reinforces Martin's point earlier that you have to be very persistent and prepare to be very persistent to succeed in a lot of cases. It's not simply a matter of getting your question down, firing it in and waiting for the information to come back. Uh, you, you sometimes have to put up with a lot of problems on the way. I suppose your point about the timeliness is that you could request some information, maybe something about what's happening right now with the unlocking of the uh, coronavirus restrictions, and uh, you might not get it back for 12 months, by which point who knows where we will be in terms of uh, um, the, the policy response. Let's focus a bit just finally on things we only know as a result of Freedom of Information request. I mean, probably the most well-known is the MP's expenses scandal back in 2009, uh, where uh, journalist uh, Heather Brook... Uh, 
uh, actually began the sort of process of trying to submit uh, an information uh, Freedom of Information Act request for the de- for the release of details of MPs' expense claims. Uh, they were eventually released. It was during the process of them being prepared for release uh, that the unredacted uh, versions of all the receipts, of course, were leaked to the Daily Telegraph, and the uh, the rest is history. Um, but uh, uh, Martin Rosenbaum, former BBC journalist uh, specialising in Freedom of Information requests, what for you were some of the best? examples of the Freedom of Information Act being used to release information that wouldn't otherwise have come out? What's on your sort of greatest hits list? Uh, So one that's on my greatest hit list is actually an example of FOI in the end working well. So, you know, maybe we should also take a look at the positive side of things as well as the negative side of things, although it took me a lot of time um, to get the information. This was about the different failure rates in MOT tests of different makes and models of cars, um, which I asked the Department for Transport for um, in order to establish which cars are most reliable. Well, first they said it's commercially confidential, we're not going to release it. I appealed to the Information Commissioner. 18 months later, I did get the information which showed that on the whole, uh, Hondas and Toyotas were less likely to fail MOT tests than Renaults and Peugeots. But the interesting thing about this now is this information is now routinely published. And it's one of a particular kind of class of information which has gone from being the sort of information which people like me as journalists had to fight the obstruction of government departments to get out in the open. Once it's out in the open, everybody says, well, it's a good thing this information is out there. It can help people buy the right cars or whatever. And now it is published routinely by the government. There are other similar examples for, you know, to do with food, Uh, hygiene, which has shifted from this kind of FOI dispute going on to being information that is regularly published by the Food Standards Agency, uh, scores on the doors that you get in, uh, you know, restaurants, food shops, and so on. So, uh, you know, there was some effort involved in that, but it's an example in a way of how uh, a process has worked to get information out in the open routinely that should be out in the open. Yeah, in fact, I remember one of the ones that I put in uh, repeatedly was to do with John Burko's foreign travel. And eventually uh, the House of Commons Authority just said it would be published uh, routinely. I think in part to stop me um, uh, irritating them quite so much. Just finally, George Greenwood, your greatest hits uh, from FOI. Oh, I have to say my, my favourite one was getting a copy of the British Army's Guide to Strip Clubs in Estonia, um, which for some reason was uh, a formalised document that, uh, that, that I was given a full copy of. Um I have to say I agree with Martin on this, though. It, it, it's, it is the kind of routine transparency that leads to proper public interest information um, that is so good. So I think the expenses scandal stuff is so good because we now have IPSA. We now can dig through the records and, and see uh, exactly what our MPs are up to. But again, it's, it's things of ministers as well. So it's the fact that we do have a transparency register for lobbying, you know, where ministers are being lobbied. Instead of having to FOI every single incident of a meeting with a minister, you know, often that stuff will be a public record now. And, it, you know, it could be better. You know, I still have to wait for either letters and emails and stuff. But, you know, it's that process of uh, making sure really important public interest information is out there um, that across several you know, previous quests that has really improved, you know, transparency and, and the rule of law in the UK. That's all we've got time for on this episode of the Red Box Podcast. Don't forget you can listen to me live Monday to Friday, 10 till 1 on Times Radio. And we bring you the best bits here on the podcast. And if you're feeling particularly nice, why not wait and review us wherever you get your podcasts from? 
This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk.